It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, And Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for February 15th, 2018, the Let's Just Ban Everything edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. From New Haven, Connecticut is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hello, David Plotz. And John Dickerson of CBS is on the air. He is covering the Stoneman Douglas massacre, and so he isn't able to tape today, but that's okay because we got super sub- New York Times columnist Ross Douthat, the Kevin McHale of podcasting. Ross, thank you for <laughs> stepping in at the last minute. It's nice, in New to, nice to be here, Larry. It's good. It's good of you to have me. Um, yeah, just. You. I just want to note that New Haven is taking over because Ross is here with me at, at the L Studio in New Haven. Well, we're, fin- we're finally going to get that outside outside the Beltway perspective that this show has That's needed right. for so long. <laughs> Right, and, and at least inside. a five-minute drive from the Acela Corridor. Exactly, inside the academy, <laughs> outside of the actual Beltway. Uh, on this week's GabFest, the latest school massacre and the undoubted unwillingness of America's political class to take any action in response to it. Then the chaos in the White House goes to 11. Is that a feature or a bug of the Trump White House? Then... Should porn be banned? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, we're going to talk about the Obama portraits. Um, and we're, it'll be a, an art lesson, Emily. Because we're really qualified are, art are critics. Great it's going to go critics. brilliantly. <laughs> so if you're a Slate Plus member, you know you get extra segments on every GabFest on, on all Slate podcasts. And uh, you will not want to miss the this deep discussion into the history of art, the history of portraiture. Uh, I can't even... Frames. We'll talk about frames. We will. No, I just couldn't think of any other art terms. Brush strokes. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, that's lin- right. Linseed oil. Uh, uh, if you yikes. want to become a Slate Plus member and listen to this brilliant segment and other Slate Plus segments, go to slate.com slash gabfestplus 
to sign up. All right. And don't forget, we have a live show coming up in St. Louis, Missouri on May 2nd at the Sheldon Concert Hall, slate.com slash live for details and tickets. Uh, we are really looking forward to coming to St. Louis. and to... Which is actually outside the Beltway. So you'll be really... I mean that that'll be authentic. Do you do you, is <laughs> right? that, then it'll be a real yes, American podcast. Are you giving right. a, are you giving us the imprimatur? Are you giving us the the doubt that imprimatur for doing that show? Absolutely. I think it's fantastic. You know you want to know where our show before that is, Ross? <laughs> You're not going to like this Portland. one as much. Portland, Oregon. <laughs> well, that is also outside the beltway, so it fits, you know. True. I, it's um and it's diversity, right? Yeah. Uh so slate.com/live for a May 2nd show at uh Sheldon Concert Hall in St. Louis. On Wednesday afternoon, there was another school shooting. This time, it's Stoneman Douglas High School in Broward County, Florida. At the time we're taping, there are 17 reported killed in this massacre, 15 wounded. A suspect named Nicholas Cruz, a student who had been expelled from the school, slightly older teenager, 19 years old, is in custody. He is somebody who was known to have been made threats to shoot up the school. He was somebody who scared other kids. He One report I read that he had actually been banned from being around campus with a backpack because they were scared of him. Um, more people are dead from this school shooting than died in the Columbine massacre, although not as many, I suppose, as died in Newtown for keeping score. Emily, there is absolutely no chance anything's going to happen in our politics from this one, is there? No, I think not. And so I kind of veer wildly from feeling incredibly frustrated. I mean, I guess no, I feel incredibly frustrated. I veer wildly from looking at the nice chart showing all the polling support for various intermediate measures like banning assault weapons and big magazines and fixing the loopholes and background checks and making it harder for people with a history of mental illness or domestic violence and stalking, which is coming up in this case, to get guns. And then feeling like this is a not something that is going to happen, that, it, you know, the political capital to be expended in this direction is incred incredibly alienating. Um for people who are already suspicious of Democrats. So it has that downside for Democrats. And then the last thing is that there are already 300 million guns in the country. And so how much would these intermediate measures really have an effect? And um, is that also a reason to throw up our hands? Or is that or is that a wrong conclusion? Because we should try to do something. Well, Ross, you have, as we'll discuss later in the show, you have this fascinating piece right. about banning porn. And one of the points you've made subsequent to the article is that there are all kinds of ways to do harm reduction around right. porn. Is the same thing true for guns, that that short of taking steps, which are which would be a full out ban on all guns, these small measures, which e each individually may have a small effect, but collectively may have a large effect? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the challenge with guns is that the problem that we're being confronted with right now, the school shooting problem, is different from the kind of harm reduction that a lot of the more plausible measures get you. Um, that, you know, the, to the extent that we have evidence that gun control clearly saves lives from other contexts and from other experiments around the world, it tends to be saving lives in terms of sort of ordinary access to weapons. Right. Um, and what that mainly cashes out in is, is suicide reduction. 
possibly accident Some reduction as well. This, I mean, this is a the, the there are like six dueling studies on the Australian experiment, which was again far not dueling with harm not dueling with guns. Actually, by the way, not dueling with guns with regression analyses. The baseline seems to be that you can be pretty certain that if you get if you have fewer guns in circulation. And, you know, s- stronger limitations on how people get them, you get fewer people committing suicide. It's harder to see that you deal with these kind of outlier cases of people who are determined to commit mass murder, um, which doesn't, you know, I'm I'm skeptical of um, the sort of, I- I'm skeptical of the link between the existing liberal agenda on guns and the problem that it's going to solve. That said, at this point, I don't see any good reason not to not to try magazine bans, um, even if you're only sort of saying, well, on the margins, you're making some of these fatalities less deadly. It, I don't think there's any harm in trying that. Um, and I think, you know, there was some talk that Republicans were going to actually do something with bump stocks after Las Vegas. Obviously, that was an even more extreme outlier case that doesn't apply in this case. But certainly, I think it's reasonable for Democrats to pressure Republicans on those issues, it does sort of alienate a certain segment of voters who Democrats in some cases have to win back. But I think it's possible, it should be possible for Democrats to thread the needle on that. So I think I think there are things that Democrats can do that, you know, I as some kind of conservative would would reasonably support. But at the same time, you do have to recognize that, you know, you're dealing in these cases, I mean, you're dealing with a kind of contagion with school shootings um, of people who are determined to get guns. You have 300 million people in the country. Sometimes they get them legally. Sometimes 300 they, million guns. Uh, th- sorry. Well, you have both, right? But yes. <laughs> but yes, you have, you have 300 million guns. And so the challenge, the challenge with these massacres is distinctive. And I, you know, when we talk about porn later, I can sort of draw some analogy. But, but the, the people committing mass shootings are more like the person who's willing to get the seven VPN connections and, you know, do 16 different things to get the bizarre fetish porn than they are to an ordinary porn well, user, if that I, analogy makes sense. You're, I, if in, when you're thinking about regulation, these people are outliers and so it's pr- a particular challenge to keep guns out I, of their hands. I mean, I don't think we know that for one thing. We – about we, this particular we shooter? We don't know, no, we don't know we anything do, about him. We, we know something. But I don't think in general know. that we know. I mean, the, the fact is that weapons are incredibly easy to get in this country. And so these people don't – the people who are, have been our school shooters and have committed our the, the mass killings have not had any difficulty getting them. So they have actually haven't had to jump through hoops. So we don't know whether if we put hoops in their way, whether they would jump through. We don't know their, if, whether they're breviks like in Norway where that guy was like, I'm going to – Commit an act of mass murder in a country which doesn't have guns and watch me go. Um, That's I, I true, but we do, but we do know that at least the initial list of regulations, the magazine restrictions, and so on. When you map sure. it up with for these sure. shootings, it yeah, doesn't, pre- sure. it doesn't prevent. I, it. I, well, but the background check part. Sorry, David. I mean, background checks, keeping guns out of the, doing more to keep guns out of the hands of people with a history of domestic violence and domestic violence-like offenses. That is coming up over and over again with these men. Right. And then, without stepping into the. Um, problematic terrain of at all blaming people with mental illness for shootings because that's not fair. It is true that people with an untreated history of mental illness um, 
are a higher risk for having guns and that we could ch- close that loophole and that, in fact, the Obama administration was work- had finalized a rule to that effect that would have added something like 75,000 people to the federal background checklist and the Trump administration shut that rule down. And then meanwhile, we have the president tweeting this morning, you know, report people who are mentally disturbed again and again hectoring the community in a way that suggests like so he doesn't want to keep guns out of the hands of someone like Nicholas Cruz but they're supposed to like what get carted away well, the, well, well that's I, the, that's the question here right like what i mean the I, I don't think the president's point is necessarily wrong but in this case it clearly clearly the guy was reported over and over again and so the question becomes what what do the police do what can the police do in this context and what are the specific rules that would prevent him from buying a gun. What's you know, if he doesn't have a history of mental illness, sort of diagnosed, but he's just sort of seen as a. I mean, he was clearly seen as a dangerous person. They didn't want him taking back. Right, he, there was a warning that he wasn't allowed to bring backpacks to school and so on. And he had a history of stalking a girl. Right. So it seems like there has to be something more in that terrain. I agree that that could be that could be done. Where you have, but go ahead, David. Emily. To, just to, to shift to this, the the fact that he left. So many warnings, right? So there's, in fact, right. uh, I saw on CNN just before I came over here. There, was, he had um, he'd left a comment on a YouTube video which said, "I'm going to be a school shooter," and the the video the person who whose video that was reported it to the FBI, who then interviewed. They didn't interview Cruz, as far as we know. They interviewed the guy who said, "Oh, by the way, there's this comment on my video." And he had po- he had photos on social media of himself posing with guns. I think maybe even with a dead animal. And so one conclusion you could draw from that is, my God, we've missed all these clues and it's outrageous and we, you know, he should have been reported and and monitored. The other you could say is, I bet there are so many hundreds and thousands of kids who are doing exactly the same thing that, that it's Mm -hmm. unreasonable to expect that, that every single one, I bet there are, I bet if you went right now and checked Instagram that you could find 50,000 teenagers posing with guns. It wouldn't be. Well, that's probably true. I don't know about posting comments saying I'm going to be a school shooter. I mean, that seems and and killing a frog and having a picture of it. I I think what's true though is, you know, I was in high school when Columbine happened, and I I just remember it. It it did feel like it, it was like there was sort of this unvoiced, unrealized possibility that had suddenly been sort of brought to life that. You know, high school is a really unhappy place. And here was this for way to a, take revenge. For a, yeah, for a lot of people. And from from the Columbine point on, you know, there, there was always this sense of like, okay, well, you know, you have 100 kids in your high school. There are two or three who you sort of think, you know, you never know, right? I mean that, you know, it's the people who are – and of course that's, you know, you're stigmatizing them and so on in the way that high school students do, but you're also sympathizing with them at the same time and sort of recognizing that, you know, adolescence is hard and high school makes it harder. And once the fantasy is made is made real, the idea that people are thinking about this is just – it's sort of part of the high school experience, it seems like. It's, it certainly felt that way. For me, before the internet, you know, before right. the sort of fantasizing that the internet enables. So it wouldn't surprise me, regardless of whether they're actually posting on YouTube channels, if you went to any large high school in America, you would find people who fit this kind of profile. But, so and here's then there's a the terrifying a... way in which the news coverage only feeds yes. that. And I find that so hard every time. But he, Sorry, Plots. Here, no, I mean, I would just want to ask a question about that. So, Ross, you're 
positing, and Emily, it sounds like you're agreeing with this sort of theory of social contagion, which is that because this idea becomes possible in people's minds and kids' minds, and it's reinforced because it happens over and over again, they think, well, the, the, the barrier to doing it becomes lower and lower, and therefore it's more likely to happen. But it's not as though kids in other countries don't know about school shootings. It's not as though the Canadian kids don't know about it. Why, what's the difference between here and Canada or here and Mexico or here and and the UK where these don't occur? I mean, it's don't we know the answer to yeah, that? It's obviously, access to firearms. <laughs> obviously access to firearms. It, it is, although it's also, I mean, America has, America has some particular sort of, you know, Norms, norms, uh, about yeah, norms about violence, and also a sort of level of, I think, social distrust and social atomization that's a little bit more advanced than in, say, Scandinavia. So I, I you know, I, I agree that it's gun levels, but it's also if you go to Canada, Canada is sort of an interesting in-between case because they have m m lower rates of gun ownership than we do, but much higher rates of gun ownership than Western Europe. And I believe they don't have – there isn't a sort of neat correlation between their crime rates and ours, right. their shooting rates versus ours. There is a sort of broader cultural difference in the US versus Canada as well. well. But they're also their gun culture is high, much more highly regulated than ours. So it is true they have yes. lots of guns, but their licensing and training restrictions are much stricter. Just to go back to whether there's going to be anything legislative, I mean you're, you – Ross, your good point about bump stocks. I I had actually forgotten that the Congress hadn't even passed that. I thought like, well, that's a gimme. I'd forgotten that. Also, it well, they wanted they they like urged the re you know there's sort of regulatory issues there where it's like there's sort of regulatory discretion, and so some Republicans said this was sort of a regulatory discretion issue that should be changed. But yeah, then it just disappeared into the vortex of chaos. But um, they also never they were supposed to do something about the background check prob that particular right. problem with like that pro you know anyway so and then and then in, but I always go back to if after Newtown if you have a you have a massacre of of twenty six year olds twenty elementary school students and nothing happens and there's a Democratic president and nothing happens then like you can pretty much just just put this one on snooze for fifty years because. The fact that nothing happened after Newtown to me means that nothing can happen unless there is something absolutely outlandish that changes. I don't know. I think Democrats presumably aspire to, to win the presidency and control of Congress at some point, right? And at that point, if you've got something that, you know, a Joe Manchin will vote for, you should have something that could pass. That uh, seems right to me. I mean, I think then the question becomes what's the political fallout and then the classic problem with this issue is that the people who vote on guns are the people who care about right. a broad Second Amendment right and the NRA, you know, obviously factors into this conversation. Uh, and so would Democratic voters be as passionate about um, regulating guns as gun enthusiasts are about not regulating them. I always – because I feel like we – there is an urgency about this conversation at these moments and then it dissipates. Well, now, you could argue there are more and more of these moments. Well, so. if the – I mean that's that's part of the question, right? To the extent that it is a social contagion, um, then, you know, as it gets worse, the political will gets stronger. And if you look back, you know, the last point when major gun control legislation was passed was the early to mid-1990s and that happened because we were still dealing with the post-60s crime wave. So you had a sort of – the uh, and, and you had 
This was before Republicans became quite as fervent on gun control. So you had a sort of, and the country was more to the, you know more to the left to the regulatory side on gun control. So a lot of things were different, but. Um, but the dynamic there was that you had this sort of perpetual sense of crisis around gun violence and that shaped the political landscape. Today, crime is down. You have sort of pockets of terrible gun violence like Chicago that are sort of remote from you know, sort of much of American experience and then you have these sort of mass shooting horrors. And I don't think it's surprising given that that you have essentially these moments of outrage and then the will dissipates and then the moment of outrage right. and so on. I think if the contagion got worse, you'd have more outrage and therefore more political will. But it's still a different dynamic when you don't have a massive crime right. wave that everybody's afraid of going on. Right. I mean, two, two small points. That, that's very well said. I mean, one is that it is true that the crime is much lower and the violent crime is much lower. Thank goodness. Although I do think – I think gun deaths are not – that much lower because there's so much suicide, and yes, so suicide so, has gone up. There's, yeah. you know, there's still what is it like fifty thousand or so gun deaths a year? Is that right? I, th I feel like it's on that order. Um, the other thing is just, I, I, just a, a moment of applause. I think one of the great shifts that has been achieved in American public policy by the right and by the NRA is the idea that guns are so the solution to gun violence. Like that's a kind of miraculous bit of jujitsu. So we have I people, I don't think, I, people I don't think carrying that's an guns. achievement. I, I don't it's think, not an I achievement. It's a no, it's, a, no, no, it's but terrible. I'm, but I'm, it's awful. No, but I'm saying I don't think the NRA has invented that. I think the culture has invented that. I think, again, I think that's a function of declining social trust and growing atomization and sort of fear of your neighbor. I think it's, I? I think no, it's but the same for open that carry, the polls, but, the but polls that show people laws. saying, can you trust your neighbor? Have been even as even as crime has gone down, those polls have been widening. More and more people, especially now younger people, say, "No, you can't trust your neighbor." I think that drives this sense of. I think the NRA is sort of picking up on it and encouraging it and all of these things. But I, I think it's a mistake for liberals to say, "Well, we have this enemy, the NRA, who has succeeded in using propaganda to change public opinion." The NRA has mobilized. A, a sort of vocal faction of America that politicians are afraid of. That's what they've done. But the broader shift where people are like, yeah, I guess I, you know, better a gun to protect yourself and so on. I think that's, I think that's the, the culture and society. Sure, I'm yes. not sure. Wait, Go can ahead, I, I just want to add a data point that's floating around in my head that I think maybe supports what you're saying, Ross, but I'm not sure. So I'll, when, I'll, I'll tell you, you can, if it does. You can let me know which way you think that one cuts or maybe neither. So when you look at the rates of gun ownership among white – so let's just take women out of the equation because they have lower rates generally. White men in America, 48 percent say that they have a gun. 24 percent of black and Hispanic men say they have a gun. So I found that quite surprising. Like I wouldn't have – now that's – that is a poll that doesn't differentiate between legal and illegal gun ownership. But anyway, it's just really interesting. When you think of what we're talking about, school shootings, which are almost entirely or usually white people versus the inner city crime that was our previous fear in other generations, which was racialized in a different direction. It's interesting to think about that. Well, in the I mean, a lot of that is urban-rural, right? That sort of, you know, gun culture. I mean, and this is where the case for having a gun for protection makes sense, I think, in a way that sort of urbanites like ourselves don't fully understand that if you live out in the country, you really are, you, know, you called 911, you're what, you know, you're what, you're leaving your wife home alone while you're going on trip or something, you're by yourself. And, and the logic of gun ownership there is 
I think, much more reasonable in certain ways than it is in, you know, sort of inner liberal suburbs or something. Um, but that's and that's also a driver of the suicide numbers in part, I think, that sort of you have more gun Which ownership. Which are higher for white men. Higher also. for, you know, it's like older white men in rural America where, you know, you have as rural America has declined, sort of weakened social ties and so on. Yeah. You know, anyway. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. We have not done enough talking on the show about how strong the job market is, um, which is really unfair to President Trump. And I would say the leading indicator of the strength of the job market is the White House itself. The White House, there are so many people getting jobs as coal miners and offshore drillers and conservative columnists for the New York Times that President Trump cannot find anyone to work in the White House. It is, it's a real strength. The private sector is growing. It's it's astonishing, don't you think, Emily? Um, the, <laughs> also, I can't find anyone who can get a permanent security clearance to work in the White House. Hmm. Yes, that is also true. So we've grown inured to some extent to the chaos in the Trump White House, but even by its catastrophically low standards, this has been a, uh, a gangrenous wound of a week. The departure of Staff Secretary Rob Porter following evidence of his domestic abuse has spilled over in crazy ways. There are reports that Chief of Staff John Kelly lied about his response to his knowledge of, of Porter's abuse. The FBI has indicated that the White House lied about what it knew about Porter. Another top staffer, speechwriter, resigned when separate domestic abuse charges became public. There have been hints and insinuation that Kelly's job is at risk. And there's like a whole bunch of stuff on the side, like with the cabinet. There was this amazing Washington Post story on Wednesday about the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, David Shulkin, oh, I think my his God. name. Oh, This story is incredible. It's, yes, I mean, the fact story. that that guy is still like two days later in his job is amazing. That, right. That, and we should just briefly say that, you know, the inspector general for his agency found that he and his wife took a jaunt to Europe that was more pleasure than business. And one of his staffers falsified an email to justify the trip and that Shulkin's wife's $4,000 flight was paid for by the government. It's just <laughs> in any other world, we would be we would care. He is the fifth cabinet secretary, Shulkin, under investigation for various forms of travel abuse. Um uh, and also then that finally this this latest thing, which uh, I forget who broke it. Maybe it was also the Washington Post or maybe it was somebody else. No, I think it was NBC News that 130 staff at the White House are operating without permanent security clearances, including, including the White House Don Council. The White House I'm so Council. confused about that. Don McGahn seemed like such an anodyne figure. He's a Jones Day lawyer. Like what is it about him that's hanging up his security clearance? I'm very puzzled by this. So, Ross, is – is this, you know, it's hard, White Houses are hard to run. They, because of who the Trump people are and because so many uh, conservatives just want nothing to do with them, they've had a hard time hiring decent people. Uh, should we cut them a break because for this chaos? Cut them a break? Yeah. No. Um, 
I mean, I, I think we should recognize that we're learning, at least so far, a lesson in the ability of the country and the world to function reasonably well with a totally incompetent, chaotic executive branch. So, I mean, if that counts as cutting them a little slack, I guess I guess I'm arguing to cut them a little slack. Um, but no, I mean, it's ridiculous. The whole thing is ridiculous. It's it's not surprising. It's exactly what anyone who watched the Trump campaign would have expected because the Trump campaign was run on exactly these terms. It's exactly what you would have expected knowing that going in from the start, it wasn't just that conservatives weren't willing to work there. It was that the Trump team very consciously blackballed people who – conservatives who had criticized them, which was 90 percent of conservatives who would, you, you would want to Especially the expert hire, qualified especially, especially foreign policy experts and so on. Um, so yeah, I mean you, you, know, you, you have – essentially you had total chaos for the first few months and then Kelly brought a semblance of order by at least seeming to cut down on leaks about how bad things were inside, inside the White House. Um, but as you can see with the Rob Porter case, um, it's very easy for Kelly to be entangled in the same pathologies. And Kelly has not come out of a lot of these controversies looking very good. He just looks good by comparison with the incompetence that preceded him. And even uh, that is waning. And even that is waning. Right. Well, right. Exactly. He he basically carried the Trump White House through, through a few months without a full-scale dumpster fire meltdown like this Porter business. As with many things about this White House, you know, you sort of sit and you wait for it to lead to some catastrophe. And happily... Um, in many theaters in the world, it hasn't yet. I guess I'm hopeful that that continues because you can't impeach or remove a president for not filling offices and not getting people through security clearances. So we're sort of stuck with the situation. So um, Emily, just to dig into that a little bit, does it matter that basically everyone in the White House is lying all the time? No one knows what's going on. Uh, the, the president is a is a is a Dodo, does any of that, does, as Ross says, does it basically not matter that much? I didn't say it didn't no. matter that much. Yeah. I just said we were, you know, we, we weren't, we, we, weren't all, we haven't all been nuked yet because yeah. of it. Um, I think it matters in terms of the problem of eroding norms and standards a great deal. It's hard to say what the long-term effect of that is because the country could snap back with the next administration and elect some hyper-competent technocrat who, David, will be your choice. You will get behind that person oh. and – and then, the Bernie Sanders administration is going to be disorganized in its own way. No, David holds a candle for Michael Bloomberg. But Bernie Sanders would be relatively Mike Bloomberg-like compared to, I think, the Trump people. I don't think. Well, he's an outsider. He, he, it's a continuum. He couldn't possibly be. His, his wife. His wife. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some there's some issues with Team Sanders too. Anyway, oh, my yes. point <laughs> being, the standards eroding does matter a great deal. It matters for our international standing. It matters for how we think of ourselves. However, what also deeply matters is having all these people who have not been cleared for permanent security clearances having access to all this highly classified information. And when you think about all the leaks coming out of this White House, you imagine that some of what the president rails about, the kind of leaky sieve, must be um, connected to the fact that, you know, these are – what the, like these are not but, these are not the people Emily, who should be in that, charge. Aren't you being a little up. bit is a little bit of moral posing here? 
Like, do you really think the country is massively Apparently, at risk? yes. Massively at risk because Don McGahn doesn't have a security clearance or Jared Kushner doesn't have a security clearance. I think what it shows is, like in the case of Jared Kushner, Jared Kushner is just a liar. He is massively dishonest. He's using the, his government position to self-enrich in ways that are disgusting. But, like, this security clearance question to me seems a little bit a little bit posed outrage to me. Really? I don't yeah. feel that way at all. I mean, maybe I just don't know enough about it, but I I imagine that there look, we know that a lot of government information is overclassified. However, there are some real secrets in there. I mean, it was not helpful when Trump blurted out, you know, the Israeli operation that was going on in Syria and like put people in danger. And so there are really things that you would want to keep super sensitive. And the notion that the inner ring of people around the president includes someone like like Jared Kushner, who can't get through. And the White House counsel part of it, I, that does seem to me to be serious. I, I don't – maybe I'm posing, but – or maybe I just don't really understand how it works. But it does seem to me like a real issue, yes. I, I – um, going back to Ross's initial point, I, I now have come to realize there are four branches of government. Or maybe it's useful to think of there being four branches of government. There's the judicial branch. There's the legislative branch. There's the – administrative executive branch, by which I'd say like the EPA and Scott Pruitt. And then there's the White House itself. It's a separate branch. We have to think of it that, as a separate branch. That third branch, branch is what we, what we call the deep state. Yeah. But it, but no, the but the deep state, state. But the deep state is now run by – it's actually being run by people like Scott Pruitt or Betsy DeVos or Rex Tillerson. And the, the, that actually they can do things. The White House is, is, a, is this um, kind of festering, crazy – ball of stuff like where nothing is getting done it's just drama it's just provocation it's lies and horror but actually and meanwhile the agencies and ta- and march along and yeah, but the agencies march along and are being marched and be, are being marched along by people you know in the case of Pruitt being the most effective but and DeVos I think and there are know, other the, examples others who are You're absolutely right. who are effective the justice and, department has been doing plenty of things as yeah, well so yeah. is the department of homeland security and so there there isn't and so et cetera. so if we right. so that we have to sort of disaggregate those two things and think like the the fourth the fourth branch the drama branch is just stupidity and maybe we should just try not to think about it very much no we can't not think about it can we for a moment that's the branch that controls the nuclear weapons though. yeah i just the notion that like we can just pretend well i mean that... technically the department of energy i guess could sort of you know affect a, um, anyway go ahead you sorry you can put your faith in that no i i just i the notion that we can just like not watch that show is not consonant with the amount of power the white house has alas i want to go for just a moment to talk about the particular problem Rob Porter has revealed, which is the deep tolerance for um, misogyny in the White House that we have seen. You know, it takes more than a week for Trump to make the incredibly obvious statement that he denounces domestic violence. The initial reaction is to say that Porter denied it and maybe he's innocent, which is the same line that Trump took with Roy Moore and other people of that ilk, and that John Kelly also was um, completely incurious, it seems, until there was an actual photo of a woman with a black eye. You know, this is part of a pattern, and it's not really that surprising. And I had a particular moment of frustration with Kellyanne Conway 
this week or last week when she said that she wasn't worried about Hope Hicks dating Rob Porter because Hope Hicks is a strong woman. Colby Holderness, who was one of two of the former wives of Rob Porter, wrote just a very moving statement about how completely wrongheaded it is to imagine that being a victim of abuse in this kind of situation is a measure of one's strength. And that is just a lesson I learn over and over again in my reporting that, you know, relationships are complicated. Emotional manipulation precedes physical violence almost always. People of both genders, but more often women, get trapped in relationships. And yes, we should encourage women to be strong, but to blame abuse victims for supposed weakness is really, really low. And even Kellyanne Conway should know better. What are we supposed to do with the fact that Trump was so slow in responding, the fact that the White House is the just doesn't care about these issues? Well, I mean, the presidency, as it has evolved as this sort of quasi-imperial office in America, um, is usually invested with a certain degree of cultural and moral authority, for better or worse. And I, th I think it's clear that on these kind of issues and many other issues, but maybe especially these kind of issues, Trump has no interest in sort of trying to exercise any moral authority, any moral judgment and so on. I mean he has – he takes the view basically that anyone who supports him must be a decent person, which is one reason along with his own bigotry why he tends to be so – strangely sympathetic to white nationalists of various sorts. And he also takes the view that since he, in his own view, was falsely accused of sexual harassment and everything else, that therefore lots men of other are, women are lying lots of them. other women are all those women were lying about him. So lots of other women are lying. So that seems to be his default. And it's interesting for me as a religious person, religious conservative and so on, to sort of watch that, you know, my own movement, what you know, whatever you want to call it, has basically to the extent that religious conservatives have thrown in with Trump, they've sort of absented themselves from the this kind of, you know, moral debate that we're having in many ways. Um, that's not true of everyone. It's not, you know, I mean, I'm a Catholic and the Catholic bishops have not, you know, unanimously endorsed Trump and in general they've opposed him and so on. But sort of figures associated with the religious right as a movement have in different ways made their peace with Trump. And what that means is in effect that we're having this debate about sexual morality that's being carried by different varieties of feminism. And, and so Trump I think is – in that sense, a kind of accelerator of a process that you know had already been ongoing with the weakening of religious conservatism, where sort of the the sort of moralistic forces in American life that really matter are increasingly associated with the left. I would say, like we're not in a libertarian moment <laughs> generally right now, but the, but if you're looking for where the energy and outrage is, you don't find it among. On the religious right, the religious right is sort of hunkered down, worried about their own future and sort of, you know, voting for Trump under duress. And meanwhile, um, you know, it's Me Too and everything else that's driving moral debate. One of the interesting points that John Dickerson has made on uh, the show before, which I did not know about, is that we think of the president as exercising this uh, role of chief mourner, of chief witness. Um, of a, a moral authority. And he points out that at least it, and he, the, the example he most recently cited was around natural disasters, that as late as the mid-60s, it was not customary for a president to go visit the site of a natural disaster and express solidarity with its victims. That, that, that was something that only really started 
in the last 40 years or so. And I think the implication of what it's John a was function saying, of the of the imperial presence, right, of the imperial. Yes. But my question to to you guys is: Is that a can we walk that back? I mean, Trump Trump is walking it back by not doing it and by having no moral authority. But is it do we want not to have a mourner in chief? Do we want not to have a moral force in the White House? Is that is that okay? I don't think Ulysses S. Grant would have you know spoken out about uh, domestic abuse. He might have in a different century. I want it back. I mean, I want it back like with someone I have some sense of respect for. But I think in these moments of national crisis or distress that it's really dismaying not to feel like there's a leader there who you have some trust for and want to hear from. Now, I recognize that there is another side to that, which is like, you know, blind following and demagoguery, but to not have any of it, I mean – but you there know. are two sides of the same coin, right? I mean, I, I think you the nature of the office now, he's sort of an immoralist in chief in a way. It's like, can you believe what the president did this time? He's, yes. a, he's a bad emperor is the language I've used in columns. Or, or you have someone who more effectively presides and fills the office. Um, and I think ideally, I'd like to walk it back. Like I wish the president sent his State of the Union to Congress to be read instead of reading it himself. I, I wouldn't – I would like to get back to what I think would be a more sort of small r Republican conception of the office. But I don't deceive myself that we can. I think sort of – So you have a bad emperor, a good emperor, not a small – like not no emperor. I mean I – you know, I like – like someone like Mike Lee, right, the Republican senator from Utah. I think he's one of the better Republican senators. He has this sort of, you know, return power to Congress, civic Republican vision of what conservatism should be for. And I think that that's a nice idea. And, you know, five years ago when I was – criticizing Obama for various power grabs. I probably wrote columns that endorsed that idea. I feel like the experience of living through Trump though has made me – it's made me more skeptical that we can we can get that back. Before we leave this, I want to make one last point, which I think I'm stealing from Ezra Klein. Or someone else, surely. But if, if – I'd seen it around. But one of the reasons why uh, it turns out that John Kelly is important and why who who is in the role of chief of staff is important uh, and I think Ezra is the person who who made this point most clearly, is that because Trump doesn't believe anything and he's sort of influenced by whoever the last person he spoke to is, it's actually incredibly important who the chief of staff to this president is. That if you imagine a, a George W. Bush White House or an Obama White House or Clinton White House, the chief of staff you know, certainly is a gatekeeper to the president, but the president had a fundamental set of beliefs and was going to pursue policies based on those beliefs with Trump, because there is no core set of values and there's no core identity and no core policy interests, uh, whoever the last person who gets to him is is going to be disproportionately import- important. And Kelly is the is the valve to that. And so, yeah, if he's going, example was that if Gary Cohn was the chief of staff, we would have the Dream Act compromise. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought I think that's that was. Um, if you have a an emperor without interest, the, the 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 courtiers suddenly actually have value and importance. This is true. Although I do think on immigration, while Trump Trump can be he has no fixed convictions and can be talked into anything. At the same time, I think he does have this sort of deep rooted sense of where his base is and how he got elected, and the fact that he you know the fact mm-hmm. that Kelly has taken a hard line on immigration and that. You know, Steve Bannon is gone, but Stephen Miller is still in the White House advising on policy. All suggests that it's not just that 
Trump can be talked into whichever. He he knows that he wants to sort of keep the restrictionist perspective. Um, I totally agree with that, and I think it's important, and that the nativism turns out to be what's core to Trumpism. So almost every person who's vaguely conservative who's associated with the New York Times um, op-ed and editorial operation this week has been taken to task, has been engaged in some been pilloried We're not going to take Ross to task. But That's so not Ross, a Ross way Douthat, Ross Douthat, who's been a conservative the New York Times editorial page for longer than most, decided he was feeling left out. He was <clears throat> feeling left out as other people were getting he had slammed. To poke the, so he decided the or someone he decided to 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 uh, <laughs> yes, to poke is the right verb in this case to poke them. Ross had a wonderful column this week or <laughs> on Sunday. Was it Sunday? Can't tell with you. It's always Sunday. It's always Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> asking whether porn should be banned. So, Ross, should porn be banned? Uh, yes, it should, um, with a lot of caveats about what the term ban practically means. Which oh, no. Now also... I'm going to end up like agreeing with you by the time you're done with well, your caveat. Well, of course. I, 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 would, I would hope that I, I, think, I think I can talk almost any reasonable person into, into restrictions on pornography. Um, but – yeah, I mean, I, I didn't actually. The column was sort of deliberately written not to make a sort of specific legal case about what we should do. I sort of said in passing at the end that you can, in fact, restrict porn in ways that you know people think the internet has rendered irrelevant, but hasn't. Uh, but the bulk of the column was basically just arguing that if we're having this kind of huge reconsideration of sex and how men and women relate and toxic masculinity and consent and everything else that's sort of been in the wind ever since Hugh Hefner died and Donald Trump was elected president and Harvey Weinstein was revealed to be Harvey Weinstein, then you can't really exclude the fact that we have over the last 10 or 15 years conducted an extended experiment in using not just pornography but basically hardcore, extreme, obviously misogynistic pornography as a kind of broad-based form of sexual education for young men. Um, and that therefore I think it's, it's plausible and reasonable and may indeed happen that this sort of ascendant moralistic feminism will return in certain ways to at least some of the arguments that feminists like Andrea Dworkin and others made in the 80s about pornography, perhaps not sort of the extremities of some of Dworkin's argument, but the general vision that feminism should be more skeptical of pornography than it has been over the last 10 or 15 years, I think would be a natural next place for at least the part so, – so it seems to me, again, as a sort of outside observer, that the kind of Me Too feminist movement has sort of divided into two visions. One that says this is all about sexual assault and we want to focus on the particular question of rape, assault and violence and so on. And another camp that says, no, we need to take a broader look at how men think they can treat women um, what dating and sexual encounters look like and so on. And the, and the division is sort of clear around something like the Aziz Ansari story that was published in the rollicking website babe.net. And there was sort of a division in reactions to that story where some people said, well, this is, you know, she's trashing Ansari and he did nothing wrong. And another group of mostly feminists saying, no, we need to talk about sort of the male privilege and so on that leads men like I'm sorry to think they can behave like this. Well, and her story from her point of view described a kind of pornified sterile encounter. Yeah, that was sort of where I 
where I sort of picked up in my own reactionary way and said, well, look, if, you know, if there is this sense that sexual encounters are pornified in a way that sort of male expectations and maybe female expectations too around sex are getting shaped by, you know, by the sort of, let's say, cramped but also extreme vision of sex presented in hardcore porn. We as a society should talk about that and that it is reasonable to sort of say, how did we let hardcore pornography sort of take over the digital commons? And obviously it didn't take over. It was part of a di the digital commons from the beginning and a huge driver of the internet's growth. But I, I think it's totally reasonable to imagine a world where pornography becomes something that is accessible online in a much more limited way than it is now and that you you know you have to jump through a lot of hoops to get it and you don't have a sort of these big porn conglomerates sort of making large sums of money off porn and that that wouldn't have to go all the way to you know you're breaking down people's doors if they're sending nude selfies or something like that that you can have a sort of a certain level of regulation that we don't have right now and stop there and that this might have a salutary effect on how people get initiated into sexuality. Are there? So have I convinced you? No. I'm, well, well, um, I, I, but I, I have mean, many actually, things to say. I mean, I'll, okay. I'm, do you want to start yeah, with your I many things? Yeah, I think the men should go first on this topic for sure. That's, go ahead. Isn't that a metaphor for pornography in general? Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> look, I mean, I've looked at plenty of pornography in my day, and I find what there is uh, the the availability, the presence of it now, shocking. Um, I liked, I thought there was nothing wrong with the, the porn hoops that I had to go through when I was a teenager, that it was just, it was clearly difficult access. There was moral disapprobation. It was hard to get. Um, so are you talking about but, like the furtive viewing of someone else's dad's Playboy or Yeah, that kind else? of stuff. Yeah, uh -huh. like finding a copy of Penthouse here, you know. Like, yep, yep. Whoa, someone's got a copy of Penthouse. Great. Um, I feel like I bought a copy of Penthouse from someone. A video, you know, that would get busted out at 3 a.m. at a sleepover or something. Um, so, I mean, it was, you know. I was in the pre-video era. It was, yeah. So, well, for me, it was like this this sharp, I would say cleavage, but maybe that's not the right term. But, you know, I went to college in 1998, so just at the dawn of the internet age. And so I had a sort of high school experience where pornography, I think it was pr very similar to how David experienced it. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as I got to college, it was just like, you know, you were in a room with four guys and everybody was just looking at porn at night. That was what people did. I don't think that cle cleavage, should, cleavage shouldn't be sharp, by the way. That's like bad right. in porn. That's sharp. Sharp cleavage is a mistake. Um, Do you have more to say, David? <laughs> um, the uh, Okay, so here's just a couple of points. One, I think if porn does end up, if we end up cracking down on porn, uh, the thing that I think I would be sad about is if – the fetish stuff got cracked down on. One of the things that I think is really good about the internet is giving a safe place for weirdos to be weird. Like people who have essentially innocent strangeness that doesn't fit in whatever the normal patterns are that, you know, you're a foot fetishist, whatever you're, a, you're a furry. Like, I like the idea that there are places where you can now safely, basically innocently like discover and indulge in that. And like, because of whatever, particular way you're built your quirk is is there i the stuff that i find troubling is the gang bangs it's like the 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 teen stuff it's it's very 
gross. But there that is. that is child what, pornography is against the law. Not ch- but you mean chi- violence, child pornography right? is not teens. There's lots of stuff for teens. He means barely legal. It's barely no, legal. Child taking pictures of girls and boys under the age of eighteen is illegal. I know, right. but there's but what a ton of porn is, is eighteen, it's nineteen. All, they're eighteen I'm year aware. old. Right. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. He's right. just that's You're, what he's describing. I'm sorry. He's yeah. describing gotcha. photos of eighteen and twenty year olds that are sold as de fa- yeah. you know barely gotcha. legal pornography. Okay. So. Anyway, go ahead, Emily. I'm just talking. You should speak your wisdom. You wanted to defend the fetishist. I think that's important because there are ways in which if you have a kind of minority sexual preference or taste, you can find your people and learn about it through pornography online. And that it's important in this conversation not to treat pornography or really just depictions of sex because we've never figured out a way to draw a line. It's not all demonic and bad. It has some really, like, bad stuff in it. Um, So, you know, to me, historic... So just first off, no, we should not ban porn. We cannot ban porn. There are many reasons for that. It would create a huge class of criminals. You know, the industry would move to Europe. We'd only add to the underground aspect of it. The Supreme Court would never in a million years go for it. It's not a good idea anyway. But it's really interesting to think about how we could perhaps regulate porn, both in terms of standards for the industry in making pornography, because that is still, you know, has a real variety in terms of how people are treated within it. And also in terms of the questions of access that we're all asking, which are important questions to ask. There is something discomforting about how easy it is for kids to access hardcore material online. I mean, I have two teenage boys, and I feel super aware of this. I also think that for feminists to get on the bandwagon of any kind of banning porn movement, like it just gives me a huge headache. It makes me want to run for the Advil because the the way in which that conversation played out in the 80s when Andrea Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon were trying to pass porn banning ordinances in cities was really incredibly divisive and not a depiction of sex that to me is like holistic and recognizable. It was this, you know, Dworkin comes very close to saying that all sex is rape. It's Mm -hmm. about men being dominant and, you know. But if you watch porn, there is a lot of it. I I would say that if you watch 87% of the kind of pornography that showed up on computer screens in college. When I was in college, times may have changed. Um, It fits Dworkin's description to an uncomfortable degree. And that's a really important truth to grapple with. I just am saying I don't want – I think that for feminists to go down the ban porn route is an enormous mistake. Regulating access is a different question and I'm super interested in what um, the British are doing. So, you know, the EU generally has net neutrality rules but the British have allowed internet service providers to put filters on so that you have to opt in to explicit material as opposed to opt out. And that seems to me like a really interesting way of trying to shift the norm of access, right? So when you go back historically in the United States, when in the dawn of the internet era, Congress passed the Communications Decency Act, which was a huge ban on obscene and even, I think, prurient material, 
that was struck by down properly by the Supreme Court. And then there was the Child Online Protection Act, which was also mostly struck down, also way too broad. But the notion that you could have an internet service provider who is offering people a default where you have to opt in and, and that that might change how parents view the internet and view filtering for their kids and make it more normative to have less access for kids, like that all, I'm interested in all of that. And when I think about my own kids, I don't know about you, David, Ross, your kids are younger, so maybe this hasn't come up for you yet. Like we did not put any filtering services on our kids' computers. We've had a pretty strict rule, you know, of having them only on their laptops, like downstairs in the house as a way of you know, making right. it, but but they have phones, and once they have smartphones, you're they're totally out of your control in terms of what they're seeing. And I know that you know, I'm sure whatever. I don't want to violate my children's privacy, but they're teenage boys, and so when I think of what is normative for them and their friends, and how maybe some of this could have been less accessible, you want to create a world for teenagers. I think where violent and misogynist material is not something that is just like what they're having every day when they go online. Um, and and maybe the British system is a way of, of getting back to that kind of world. I don't know. I mean, I do think there are these tricky questions about how you define this and what you do about the fact that most pornography is as you describe, Ross, but not all of it is. And then finally, I would say that what we're really missing in all of this is comprehensive sex ed that gives kids another route to learning about sex and puts porn in context and makes them think critically about it and have some kind of other option and distance. Like that to me, and I assume that you, well, I don't know, Ross, I'll be interested to hear what you think about this. I would assume you disagree with that, but that to me feels like what is the enormous gap in American culture. I mean, I grew up with comprehensive sex education. Um, my, you know, high school biology teacher here in New Haven, in fact, was a Connecticut sex educator of the year. Um, and I feel like I got sort of the <laughs> you full. Got like a gold I got like the full, f- the That's full awesome. what is the prize? of sort of liberal, What's the statue? liberal sex education. And to me, you know, my impression of it was that it was just sort of. It wasn't that it was like destructive exactly. It was that it was sort of irrelevant um, so and, not- that, and that it, that there isn't a way, you know, that people, people, I mean, first of all, that there's in certain ways no way to get a certain kind of sexual education until you're in an actual relationship and that sort of the classroom experience of talking about these things is just not, you know, it, it doesn't, it just doesn't sort of, it, it's like it's just sort of overwhelmed by hormonal realities and sort of the the nature of teenage life and and just the huge gulf between actual sexual experience and anything that you read and discuss with a teacher so i'm i'm just sort of i'm generally skeptical of the view that you know there is sort of that schools and educators can lead kids to a sort of holistic sex positivity in which they're making good choices and so on. I, I don't think that's – I mean, you know, I, I have a sort of, again, sort of darkly conservative view of this where, you know, the sex drive is incredibly powerful and that historically it's been restrained and channeled by law and custom and morality and that any sex education um, sort of worth a damn is going to be focused as much on sort of thou shalt nots which is again i think where a certain strand of feminism has been in the past and will and is ending up again in the idea that okay you know primarily we need to set some rules 
around this. And I think it. I think so. An effective sex, edu- sex education figures out the rules it's trying to impart and doesn't delude itself into thinking that it's sort of teaching people how to be, you know, your, our bodies, ourselves, sexual beings in a way that I think is unlikely. Um, but then beyond that, I mean, I, I think. Look, in, in terms of the regulatory stuff, I mean, I will. You know, I will take what I can get. I, I am, you know, the I, the the European experiments that you're describing sound totally reasonable to me. Any steps I think that take us away from the situation we're in now are wise steps. I just think that there's also a certain liberal, like you know, this idea that well, we'll draw this line and we'll say, well, we're really concerned about what's happening with our kids and so on, but. You know, childhood, adolescence, and so on. These are all arbitrary categories, and we've set up a culture in which people are effectively adolescents till they're thirty. And you know, I'm not going to tell you, oh, I'm very concerned about what my sixteen-year-old is seeing. But once they're twenty-three, I'll assume they're adults. I mean, the, the shaping influence of this extends well across the life cycle. I think in ways that are not sort of contained by our language of protecting children. I find what you're saying very. Um, appealing in a lot of ways. I guess my I have a sort of evidence question for you, which is: I think the teen pregnancy rates are down. I think that STT, STD yes. rates are down. Sex. Early sex yep. rates are down at a time when porn, as, porn doesn't when, turn kids into wild animals who so, just copulate so all over. The what place. is the nope. evidence? And, and I and I I am really sympathetic to your your concerns about the social atomization and and the fraying of the social fabric. What is the evidence beyond the fact that it's like it feels nasty. The porn does feel There's nasty. Some and wrong. What is the evidence that the, the pornography itself is a cause of this rather than just a symptom of a larger set of fraying? You know, there are basically warring studies. If you go to the website of like the Witherspoon Institute at Princeton, which is a conservative outfit, they have a thing on the social harms of pornography, and you can find a lot of interesting studies that suggest sort of causal links. But then you can also to find what? between what porn point? and sort of antisocial behavior, behavior writ large, depression, unhappiness. But there's a correlation causation issue. It's people in unhappy relationships are more likely to look at porn. There's, you know, you can find studies that will say, you know, if 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 the couple, if they don't talk about pornography use, it breaks up their marriage. But if they do, they're more likely to stay together. And so that makes the case for sort of sex positive, you know, teach people to think critically about porn. You know, I, I think we spend a lot of time in the media landscape today arguing about studies. And I, in certain ways, in this case, I'm appealing to sort of cultural experience and moral intuition. I think there is a strong sense among young women that, again, I think is manifest in a lot of the Me Too debates that young men are messed up. And that ha- there are a lot of causes for that. And, you know, you can talk about student debt and youth unemployment and, and changing gender roles and popular culture and popular culture that's not pornography. I think if you look at, you know, the story of sexual life over the last 15 or 20 years is that we have sort of gotten some of the the sort of materially worst excesses associated with the sexual revolution, rising teen pregnancy rates, um, you know, the AIDS crisis, high abortion rates and so on. All of that has sort of been not fixed but gotten under control to some extent. And even the out-of-wedlock birth rate over the last five years have, has leveled off. So we're not in a sort of crisis landscape. But we've achieved that at the price of basically it seems like relationships just aren't working that well. So marriage rates are down. People are having fewer kids. People are having less sex. And again, if you look at the culture, people seem really unhappy with the dating landscape. And I, I, I think that the, the fact – I feel like porn is like 
it it is a numbing agent basically it takes it it doesn't it inflames but then it deadens it inflames and then it deadens and it it doesn't turn men into rapists uh, which was i think an argument made in the 80s that has not been borne out in the statistics i mean you you see it in you know the sort of extreme case that conservative literary types like to cite is the, the world of Brave New World, right? Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. This is a world where they've sort of achieved perfect social stability by giving everybody sort of extreme forms of antidepressants that make them happy and by giving everybody access to the feelies, which are basically virtual reality pornography. And that world is stable. And in the same way, like I think our sexual social landscape has sort of stabilized. But I think it's stabilized in a place that you know, is headed in a sort of slightly Japanish direction, where in Japan, it's all you know, pornography is a much bigger thing among young men in more extreme varieties, and relationships between the sexes just aren't working at all. Nobody's getting married. The birth rate is astronomically low, and you know, this is it's not it's not happiness and human flourishing. And there so is again, no taking... chance that the reason that that is happening in Japan is pornography. There are so many other f- factors. In Japan, I, about how I, women are treated. I was course, with you until okay. you got to Japan. I, I know nothing about Japan. I'm really skeptical. I mean, I'm on. I feel like David's got to be right about that. So I'm going to recommend a book right now uh, by Aria Levy, "Female Chauvinist Pigs," which I think does a great job of exploring, in a nuanced way, some of the problems you are talking about, Ross. It's a, a very fine reactionary book by a lesbian New Yorker writer. Um, And just for that reason, we should all go and read it again. Where I will meet you on this is I do think there is a way in which the sexual assault debate – and this this predates me too. It's part of the campus sexual assault debate. Some of what is being exposed and – and is creating a lot of distress is bad sex. And I don't mean to suggest that everybody who, you know, says in any way that a lot of rape complaints merely come down to that. But there is in the mix of troubled sexual relationships what seems to be – and again, I think the Aziz Ansari story, if you take the female point of view we have about it, is a good example of that. I agree with you. And I think it's important to explore all of that. To go back to sex ed – I was pretty interested in the kind of sex ed that Maggie Jones's cover story in the New York Times Magazine talked about this weekend because it seemed more open-ended, smarter, and more useful than the sex ed I remember getting in high school. But when I was talking about sex ed, I did not at all mean to say this is up to like your health class in high school. I meant how we all talk about sex with teenagers. It is hard to talk about sex with kids, but Whenever I force myself to do it with my kids, I feel like it's important and useful and I wish I did more of it, that there is a way in which we are such prudes in America. We wall off this part of their lives and act as if like it's taboo to just like talk about it in a normal way with them. And that's what I meant, that there's this way in which like we have created a vacuum and then left pornography to fill it. And that is the real problem. Again, I don't have teenagers yet. Um, I anticipate having – I don't think it makes any sense for parents to leave this to the culture at all. And I think there's a weird – we do have a certain kind of residual Puritan legacy in conversations about sex that coexists with an overwhelmingly pornified popular culture. So I, d- I don't buy the argument that you sometimes get from liberals that you know all the problems are just this residual Puritanism and, and so on. But there is – yeah, there is a certain – you know, Americans – have certain kinds of 
Protestant hang-ups about sex. I'm that, not blaming that, Protestants. I know I'm. I'm blaming Protestants. No, I, I'm. <laughs> I'm handling like the in Jew, the the intro. The intro. The, 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 the Jew is defending the Protestants against the Catholic. I think it's much broader <laughs> than that. I don't know. Well, every. I mean, the other thing is that you know, s- sex, sex is is very dangerous and complicated and challenging. And I think that there's a sort of at the end point of as, as much as I'm trying to sort of you know sort of steer the feminist conversation i think at the end point of feminism exactly no i'm not, not really you, you don't you don't think that's that's going to well as i said religious <laughs> conservatism is dead as a sort of so moralistic force in america like, so i'm trying to, to co-opt do. yes i'm going to co-opt <laughs> i'm going to co-opt feminism in a very sort of you know dialogic way without any mansplaining um but uh, but I was – yeah, I think at the end of the feminist vision is a kind of un, still and sort of unrealistic utopianism about where we can get to with something that, you know, is invested with all the force of all the passions plus all the importance of, of you know, reproduction and the continuation of the species. I have um, one more utopian thing to say, which is yes. that when I look at the research on the effects of pornography, what interests me – are the studies – and there's a pair of researchers from the Netherlands whose names are not in my head who have done a bunch of these. And they look at things like um, trying to control for other variables, though that's very hard. You know, are men more prone to objectify women after they view a lot of hardcore pornography? Right. Are girls being pressured to do things like anal sex that they don't really want to do? And is that kind of coming from pornography? And is that leading to less satisfaction? I mean, the the sexual statistics I find really troubling in the world is the orgasm gap. Um, when you look at young women having sex, they are not having orgasms at the rate that young men are. And that like really sucks. So I think all of that is like worth paying attention to. But the other thing about these Dutch researchers is that they often say, look, if you are talking about if, – if kids are in a culture in which um, there is what I would call sex education, which I don't mean school. I mean just like people talking in a normal way about sex and how they fit into relationships and how pleasure and desire are – come out of relationships and trust and love and romance, then you can minimize all the bad effects. And so that's right. my no, this is the universe. this is this is the liberal dream. Um, but the conservative I'm wedded to the it. conservative raises his hand and says, yeah, look, we we know what situations in which you know what, what the situations are in which people have more sex and happier sex and better sex. And those situations are Leave aside the marriage question, but they are long-term committed relationships and that's why every society in human history basically has discouraged casual sex. And our society is wedded to the idea that you can have casual sex without the level of particularly female unhappiness that it seems to engender. And I, I think that that idea so far has not been borne out by the American experience. All right. Can I ask one final tiny question? Is the orgasm gap growing or just it exists? Because if it were growing, then I would say that's a cause for real anxiety. If it exists, that just suggests some that, that doesn't suggest are, that, men are, that men are men. That men are I, having more orgasm. Right, it doesn't suggest right. that anything has changed. I am not sure about change. I don't know whether the data is longitudinal. I was talking about another particular study, which I'll go find and we can post, um, which was a survey of college students, but I don't know how far back it went, so I can't answer that question. It's not. It, it was. Uh, it was a significant gap to me, like a um, a galling gap. Hashtag, it would be interesting to see that too. Um, right. Exactly. <laughs> 
the all right, we're going to stop there. Everyone should please go read Ross's uh, column in the Times. Is it should should porn be banned? Let's ban porn. No, it's let's ban, let's ban porn. porn. Let's ban porn. Well, you're com- as I said to someone stick. online, yeah. you're competing with pornography for yeah. clicks. You need your title to be as aggressive and domineering as possible. Uh, and also read the great um, responses it engendered, including some from Ross himself, which were best of all. Okay, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you have nothing to do because the porn has all been taken away, so you're just sitting there talking to your significant other. Again, you have to talk to them again. You can't go look at porn. Emily, what are you going to be chattering about? I was um, taken this week with a story, a piece in NPR by Chris Arnold about how Mick Mulvaney, the new head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, is changing that agency. And I was particularly struck by it because of the way in which Mulvaney is uh, protecting payday lenders. Preventing, yes, I know. I find this so upsetting because I have done some reporting about people who have taken out these loans with these horrible interest rates, and it is just such a curse on the poor. And the idea that so what's happening? So Mulvaney's P- CFBB has dropped a new regulation to rein in payday lenders and dropped an investigation of a particular payday lender. And what I liked about this NPR story by Chris Arnold was that the administration had put out the notion that it was the career attorneys at the CFPB who wanted to drop um, the investigation. And Arnold went in and did some reporting. And no, that is not the case. This was a decision made by the political appointees. You know, the CFPB is such an interesting creature, you know, created mostly at the motivation of Elizabeth Warren and this real effort, you know, by the left to control the worst excesses of capitalism and have the government come in and try to protect some borrowers um, and other people who are being consumers who are being screwed by rapacious American businesses. And it really was designed to address the worst excesses. And now it's being utterly defanged and derailed. And it's part of the kind of juggernaut of effective bureaucratic operations of the Trump administration that we should be paying attention to. So anyway, go check out Chris Arnold's uh, story about the CFPB and NPR. Ross, what is your chatter? I mean, I don't have a strong take on it. Um, And yet. And yet. No, I'm just, I'm interested by the speech that Elizabeth Warren gave uh, to Native Native American group, I believe, uh, 48 hours ago or something, which attempted to, if you will, lean into the the great Pocahontas controversy about uh, Warren's claim of Cherokee ancestry that sort of was a swirling controversy briefly during her last Senate campaign and which has led of course, the president of the United States to dub her Pocahontas. And I I was mostly interested in it just in terms of sort of where liberalism and the left is today. I I feel like Warren, I've sort of tended to discount her a little bit as a 2020 presidential candidate, and I'm not entirely sure why. Um, But in part, I just sort of reading the speech where, you know, effectively she's sort of strongly in certain ways laying claim to an ethnic identity that she cannot prove that she actually has while making sort of arguments that, you know, in general are sort of dovetail with liberal liberal views. I, I just – I sort of wondered, you know, does Warren have a kind of protection around this issue because she's being used by Donald Trump? to sort of throw this epithet? 
or as a figure who's sort of trying to rally left-wing support potentially for a presidential campaign, does she actually run into some sort of strange intersectionality buzzsaw where she gets accused of, you know, sort of, I mean, appropriation basically of some weird kind rather than being, you know, rather than it being an affirmative action controversy as it was on the right, does this become on the left some argument about, you know, here's this white woman claiming trail of tears connections that she doesn't really have. I find sort of her approach to these questions and the potential reaction kind of interesting to watch. My chatter is a very Basilonian chatter. Uh, about really? A That's so odd. It's about a Washington Post op-ed by Evelyn Baker, who's a retired Missouri state judge. Did you see this, Emily? No, I'm dying to hear about my your, my, your chatter. That's really my chatter. So she is a judge who in 1997 sentenced a man or a boy named Bobby Bostick to 241 years in prison for his role in two armed robberies in which no one was seriously hurt, although not for lack of trying. I mean, they they did shoot people who happened not to be seriously hurt. Uh, Bostick was 16 years old at the time of the robberies and didn't take a plea deal that his his collaborator did and so ended up going to trial and was sentenced to 241 years in prison. He's not eligible for parole because of how Baker sentenced him until he will be 112 years old. So it's effectively life in prison. Uh, and the So Supreme, that means his sentence should be up for review. Well, the Supreme Court, so right, so the Supreme Court in the Graham versus something case a couple of years ago, Florida. several years ago, said that life without parole for uh, for children is not an acceptable sentence. They have to, their case has to be reviewed. And Missouri, in the case of Actually, Boston, sorry, the Supreme Court said they had to be reviewed, but not every everyone sentenced as a child cannot stay in life for prison. They have to show that that it's a particular exception. So the life without parole sentence is possible. It's just supposed to be super unlikely. Go ahead, sorry. In any case, Missouri's interpretation of Bostick's case is, well, he has 241 years in prison. It's not life without parole. And he will be up for parole when he's 112. Therefore, it's not life without parole. And therefore, his case should not be reviewed. And that's what the state says. Um, that is a losing argument. They, it's going so anyway. The Supreme Court is going to re, is going to review it, decide whether to take the case, or decide maybe just to 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 tell Missouri to buzz off. But the interesting piece is that Baker herself wrote an op ed saying, "I really hope they overturn this. This sentence was excessive. This needs to be reviewed." Um, and I really that she re, she regrets it, and that she was. Did she say why? She she said that they need to give him the chance to prove that he's changed, which is the chance that she she didn't give him. She just basically said, I gave too, too harsh a sentence and I didn't think about it. And I was, I punished him for not taking a plea deal effectively. And so she hopes the Supreme Court reviews it. It does sound like that Missouri's arguments seem really tenuous. And it does sound like the Supreme Court, if they want to uphold their ruling and Graham will side with, with Bostick. And the, AC, the ACLU appealed on Bostick's behalf. That is our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Izzy Road. You should follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. You should come to our St. Louis show on May 2nd. Go to slate.com slash live to get tickets for that. For Emily Bazelon and for the always delightful Ross Douthat, come back anytime, Ross. I am David Poke us with more sticks. Yes. Poke us with a stick. Poke us with a sharp stick. Thanks for coming. My pleasure. <laughs>
Uh oh, we've like ruined Ross's reputation with that sign off, David. Oh, well. I don't think so. My, 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 my reputation. I think he's been, okay. Been ruined long ago. Ruined. Solid. Yeah. <laughs> okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.